Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Seven Letters, an in-depth study on the seven letters that John recorded in the first four chapters of Revelation. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. Father, we need your presence. Lord, maybe today more than ever, I'm aware of my weaknesses, my frailties. Lord, my gifting and intellect does nothing for nobody, God. Lord, if anything of eternal value happens in this room today, if any lives are changed, encouraged, impacted, it'll have to be because you come. Holy Spirit, move as your word is proclaimed. We believe this scripture to be fully inspired, fully inerrant. So, Lord, as I do my best to preach it with accuracy, I ask that you would release a grace and an anointing and a presence. We need you, Holy Spirit, to move. We need you, God, to speak. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Wednesday, July 27, 2011, Billy Graham said this. He said, the evangelical world has lost one of its greatest spokesmen. I have lost one of my close personal friends and advisors. John Stott had passed away, reports say, due to AIDS-related complications, whatever that means. Passed away the night before. And John Stott was a theologian. He was trained at Cambridge um, some would say that if, if evangelicals could elect a pope, John Stott would be the guy. We don't want a pope, y'all, just so you know. Um, Stott was a leading evangelical scholar, and he really birthed a movement of evangelicalism, um, particularly in the Church of England. Remember, we talked uh, a bit about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. Martin Lloyd-Jones was advocating that evangelicals exit their denominations if the denominations were not clinging to the inerrancy of scripture and basically the core values of the evangelical movement and Stott met him head to head and kind of argued back that evangelicals should stay within their denominations, stay plugged in and become a catalyst for change where they were and Stott really kind of won the day a lot of evangelicals stayed in the uh, church of england and um, fought and, and there, there still is a, a movement um, of people arguing for the inerrancy of scripture and um the truth of the gospel, that the gospel produces a born-again experience. is not just a social movement, but it's a spiritual um, thing that happens to sinners. Dead people come alive as Jesus is proclaimed. And, and Dr. Jones, as we said before, was a brilliant man. Um, so Stott went, went head-to-head with him. Later, Stott went head-to-head with Billy Graham over what's called the Lusane Covenant. The Hussein Covenant was a document compiled in, in Switzerland um, by evangelicals, and it was primarily about um, the way that the evangelical movement was was going to do missions. Um, it uh, 
that the Lusane Covenant is a, is a document that is still used today by many movements. It's kind of the doctrinal statement. Um, and it affirms the authority of Scripture. It says that Jesus alone is the sole means of salvation. It advocates for a strong emphasis on evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. And the Lusane Covenant had a paragraph on social justice or social action, meeting the needs of the poor, the sick, and the downtrodden. And that paragraph was largely um, under the influence of John Stott. And this is where Billy Graham and John Stott had a disagreement. Obviously, Billy Graham, the fiery evangelist, um, wanted to focus on evangelism and evangelism alone. And Stott believed that social action uh, was a part of evangelism and that to reject it was to miss an important part of the gospel. Stott emphasized that Jesus healed the sick. Jesus said that anyone who gives a cold a, a cup of cold water in my name gives it as unto me. Jesus said when you visit prisoners, you visit when you visit that prisoner, I receive that as if you visited me directly. Stott said we need to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, but we also need to display the truths of the gospel through acts of social justice. Billy Graham said we need to just preach the, the gospel truth. Billy Graham said it would be easy, essentially, it would be easy to become another humanitarian organization that just got into feeding the hungry and never fed the spiritual needs of the hungry. Billy Graham said there's a tension there. So after the Wasaying Covenant was established, Graham stood up later at a later date in front of all the leaders and he said, Billy Graham said this, what I counsel is that we stick strictly to evangelism and missions while at the same time encouraging others to do the specialized work that God had commissioned the church to do. Stott knew that that was a smack at his conviction and that the church, that what, what Graham did was smack at his paragraph, at his conviction that the church should also care about feeding the hungry, relieving oppression. And Stott, frustrated, laid awake at night, frustrated with Billy Graham fuming. You know how you do when you can't sleep and you get mad? I always try to just go to sleep, Caleb. <laughs> so Stott decided in the middle of the night to act. And the next morning he stood up and said, I will leave this committee if Graham's advice is followed. We must do all of the gospel. And the committee's response was they took John Stott and they took um, Peter Wagner, who was at the time teaching um, on missions at Fuller. Theological Seminary, they took John Stott and they took Peter Wagner and they locked him in a room and they essentially said, work it out. Um, And that would have been an interesting conversation to take part of. And the wording of the covenant changed a little bit and it didn't, you know, wasn't really that meaningful. But this week I thought about Billy Graham and John Stott's disagreement and then I I thought about Whitley and Whitley, Wesley and Whitfield's disagreements, their theological controversies, critiques on each other's ministry styles. And all of these men were influential and dynamic leaders. They had different emphasis on ministry that flowed from different ministry gifts and different personalities. And they thought differently and naturally because they thought differently, they had disagreements. But they all agreed on one thing, and that was that you cannot truly experience Jesus and not do something. And they argued about how they should do the something. But they were very much agreed that they should be doing something. Whitfield wrote this. He said, "Uh, a true faith in Jesus Christ will not suffer us to be idle. No, it's an active, lively, restless principle. It fills the heart so that it cannot be easy till it is doing something for Jesus. 
A true faith in Jesus will not suffer us to be idle. It won't allow me to be idle. It's active, lively. It's a restless principle. It fills my heart so that it cannot be easy. My heart cannot rest until it does something for Jesus. Active, lively, restless even. That restlessness is often what brings tension in leaders of the church. It's a restlessness to be effective. It's a restlessness to be fruitful. It's a restlessness to move forward no matter what the cost. It's an anxiousness, uneasiness to do something for the gospel of Jesus. As we prepare to read of the church of Laodicea, I wanted you to hear John Stott debating with Billy Graham about the way in which we do something and Billy Graham pushing back violently, kind of pushing back and saying, no, the way that we do something should look more like this. And John Stott commented on Laodicea, our text today. This is what John Stott wrote. The Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. Argue about the most effective means of fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what Graham and Stott argued about. But there is zero argument about the fact that we should be fulfilling the Great Commission. This tension, I've thought about, I've lay in bed last night thinking about this. This tension of restlessness that ought to exist within the heart of a local church seems to be totally absent from Laodicea. Again, there's a, there's a restless feeling that motivates every great intercessor Every great man or woman of prayer that lays on the ground at night and cries out, Oh God, move. Oh God, give us souls. I love that John Hyde, praying John Hyde prayer. Give us souls or I die. What motivates that kind of prayer life is a restlessness to see Jesus be glorified in a community. There is a longing Deep within the soul of every great evangelist. It is an uneasiness. It's an unwillingness to settle. Even an inner turmoil. A frustration to do something for the gospel. Like I, I can't just sit on my hands. I, the, the prophet Jeremiah said. If I say that I'll no longer speak. I, I can't hold my tongue. Because there's a, a fire within me. I think Jeremiah is describing that restlessness. There's a fire within my belly. I can't not say something. That's what exists within the heart of the prophet Jeremiah. That's what exists within the heart of Billy Graham. Exists within the heart of John Stott. Certainly exists within the heart of George Whitfield. My God, he preached from coast to coast. Existed within the heart of Wesley, Edwards, Spurgeon. All the great men and women of old who saw God move. There was a restlessness, a Anxiety may be too strong of a word, but an anxiousness that sat in their gut, which said, I know I live in a community where people are going to hell and I have the remedy. I live in a community where the churches are declining and hell is advancing and I have the message. And I have the commission. 
And Jesus says, I give you all authority. I have the authority to proclaim the gospel. Paul calls us ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. And so I have the message. I have the commission. I have the authority to do something about it. It's on me to some extent. Of course, the Holy Ghost is going to move. Of course, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Of course, God holds all things in his hand. But God has sovereignly chosen to use his church. That's me. And when a church loses that, the church has lost everything. And the church will quickly begin to decline, quickly begin to become stale. And the church will no longer be effective. And it's maybe one of the greatest frustrations in my own life, in my own ministry, is that I have this restlessness. And sometimes I get frustrated with myself and frustrated with where we are. Like we could do more. And sometimes I find myself talking in the flesh and I should have held my tongue. And because there's, there's this thing in me, it's frustrating. But maybe my greatest calling, maybe the reason the Lord brought me here to this island, to this church, I don't maybe the greatest commission in this hour is that that God wants us to feel that restlessness. I feel like it's the greatest commission in this hour for me to get us as a church to feel it again. To feel that anxious, we got to do something. We should be doing something. Why aren't we sharing the gospel? Why aren't we inviting people to a life-giving church community where discipleship is happening and young leaders and old leaders are being raised up? Why aren't we doing more outreach? Why aren't we? Those, are, those, those questions should, should plague you. I pray they plague you. And when you come to me and say, okay, well, why aren't we doing more outreach? I'm going to look right back at you and say, because you're not leading it yet. Let's read the letter. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, the last church we studied, got no rebuke from Jesus Just affirmation. Today, Laodicea gets all correction and no affirmation. Jesus opens with these words, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation or the preeminent one, the first. That line does not mean that Jesus was the first creation. Jesus is not created. He's eternal. He was from the beginning. That language means that he was the preeminent one, the crown 
he refers to himself as the Amen. The one who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The one who is faithful and true. His diagnosis of the church at Laodicea is sure and true. The church cannot shirk his correction or bend their way out of his rebuke. I say this often, but you can't, you can't fool omniscience. You can't manipulate your way out of the truth coming from an omniscient God. When you get in a fight with your husband or wife, you might be able to manipulate and twist it and make them feel like they're the ones with the problem, even though it's your heart. You know you're the one with the problem, but you know you can't do that with God. You can't manipulate omniscience. He sees perfectly, knows perfectly. And Jesus says that to Laodicea. I am the true. I am the amen. What he declares comes from the mouth of truth, the very embodiment of truth himself. Verse 15. I know your works. Remember, Philadelphia's works were known. Jesus said they stood fast in persecution. Philadelphia held, held on even in persecution. Sardis's works were known. Jesus said he found them incomplete. I, I find your works incomplete, he says to Sardis. Thyatira's works were known. They had a love for one another, patience, and latter works that were greater than the former works. But Laodicea is given this statement. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either. But because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. One of the archaeological facts known about the city of Laodicea is that they had no um, source of water on their own. They had to pipe in water from other regions. Archaeologists say that the pipes are still everywhere. That as they excavate, they find kind of aqueducts and pipes run into houses. And some of the pipes are so filled with sediment that water couldn't even go through anymore. Um, Oftentimes, lime deposit filling the the pipe. And that tells the archaeologists that the water that they were piping in was dirty. It wasn't clean. I would see it had no access to the cold water of the mountains or the hot water of the springs. But they piped in contaminated water that by the time it reached the individual in need was totally lukewarm. We know that physicians in this period used lukewarm water to induce vomiting. Our text says uh, Jesus will spit them out. The Greek word is a mayo. It literally means vomit. Jesus says, I will vomit you out. I will vomit you out of my mouth. And Jesus paints this picture. I came for a drink, but you were lukewarm. I came to be refreshed. I came to be restored. But what you brought me was lukewarm. Now I vomit you. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Your works are neither hot nor cold. Your works are neither hot nor cold. Now at first we read this passage and we think that we think of in our culture hot as being hot with passion and cold as being stale or indifferent. And we try to interpret this passage to mean that Jesus would rather us draw the line in the sand and you might as well just be stale and indifferent rather if you're not going to be hot with passion. And that's not what the text is saying and commentators largely agree. That's not what the passage is communicating. We speak of being hot as good and cold as bad, but that wouldn't have been what the original audience read this to mean. And there's a principle when you interpret scripture, it's a hermeneutical in principle that means that the, the, the passage cannot mean to me what it did not mean to the original audience. Now that doesn't, that, that principle gets a little funky when you're dealing with prophetic passages that have dual purposes, but otherwise that principle stands and, and it's a principle we should work 
to grip. So the, the passage, we can't, we can interpret the passage to mean something to our church that it didn't first mean to Laodicea. The way that we interpret this text should, to the best of our abilities, be the same way that Laodicea would have interpreted the text. They are the original audience. We try to hear it in the way that the original audience would have heard the text. And the original audience would not have heard cold water as a bad thing. Because when you're hot in the east in the sun, and ain't nobody got a refrigerator or ice cube sitting around, cold water is a beautiful thing. Cold water is refreshing. It brings restoration. Sometimes, like, I, I know the Sprite commercial says that Sprite's going to quench your thirst, but I'm telling you right now, don't do it, okay? Don't fall for that line. When you've been working in the sun, you need water, okay? Cold water, preferably. And hot water, we know from history that they used hot water for specialty drinks at parties. And obviously, think Greco-Roman world. Hot water, the baths, they're, they're using hot waters for baths. It's like healing for your body, for your muscles, for your joints. To sit hot water is a good thing, and cold water is a good thing. They both serve purposes. Hot water has a purpose. Cold water has a purpose. Lukewarm water has one purpose. It makes people throw up. Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea, you have no purpose. You serve no purpose. Now, I want you to notice that the context of their lukewarmness is not the spiritual tenor of the church, but the works of the church. Your works are lukewarm. In other words, that the context is what they're doing, not how they feel. If you interpret this text to mean that Jesus is primarily concerned with the way that the church feels, you'll put yourself on this rat race wheel where you're always trying to feel more passionate, feel better, feel like you have emotional zeal. And that's a prominent position in, in charismatic cultures, Pentecostal cultures at times. And I put myself through that. If, like I've got to always feel hot. And I want to tell you that there are days like you that I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And my kids don't sleep, y'all. I don't know why, but they don't sleep. And there are days where I don't feel like getting up and worshiping. But this text is not about the way that I feel. It's about what I do. And so people, especially young people, ask me sometimes, Caleb, how do you stay hot? And what I try to say is that my hotness is not a feeling. It's a conviction. And, and I believe Jesus is worth like extravagant praise even on the days when I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I believe that Jesus is worth extravagant generosity, giving to the poor, giving to the church, giving to mission, even on the days when I feel like spending that money and going out to eat. I believe Jesus is worth my faithfulness to share the gospel and lead my family well, even when I feel like taking a nap and laying down. Like my, 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 my hotness is not a feeling, it's a conviction. And Jesus is not saying to the church, I don't like the way you feel. He's saying, I don't like the fact that you don't do anything. You guys hearing what I'm saying? Some days I feel cloudy. If you know me well, you know I don't like the winter at all. I hate the winter. It throws me off. It's hard to get out of bed. But my walk and commitment to Jesus is not dependent on the season. He's not talking about how they feel. He's talking about what they do. Your works, I know them, he says. They're lukewarm. 
You serve no kingdom purpose. Like lukewarm water, you are not beneficial. Again, hear me. Whitfield and Wesley are going to argue about the way that they do something, but they are not arguing about the fact that they should be doing something. Stott and Graham, should we just be focusing on clearly the proclamation of the gospel, or should we also be focusing on serving the poor, healing the sick? What, what, what should our focus be? But we should have a focus. And I think that like to feel out the larger context of this passage, that men like like Stott and Graham have totally different giftings, callings, personality. Graham was this kind of fiery southern preacher. He was gonna he was an evangelist through and through. Stott was a theologian, okay? Cambridge trained. Of course they had different personalities and giftings and and, and churches are the same way. Churches are not cookie cutter little stamps. Like we all have to look exactly the same way. Different churches are going to have different emphasis and different seasons and different like passions. We got to do this in our region. And that's okay. That's what Jesus, I think Jesus means when he says you're not hot and you're not cold. You're not fulfilling this kind of purpose that that's healing and restorative. And, and you're not feeling, you're not feeling this kind of purpose. You're not, you don't have this passion. You, you don't have anything. And so it's not that every church has to function exactly the same way or have the same programs or the same ministries, but every church should carry a restlessness in their belly, an anxiousness to see their city one for Jesus. But Laodicea does nothing. They have no gospel vision, no kingdom purpose. Jesus says, I come to you for a drink, but you refresh me in no way. You're not helpful. You're not useful. And, and when you consider your life and your family's life and you consider your, ch- your church context and your local community context, you have to ask yourself this question from time to time. Am I useful to the kingdom of God? Am I serving a purpose for God's kingdom? Am I available to be used? What point, I say this to you often, at what point in my week am I doing something that serves a purpose to advance God's kingdom to the earth? I can't answer that question for you, nor would I want to answer that question for you, but it's something to be pondered. Checking the clock. That was the first thought of Jesus. You're lukewarm and I'll vomit you out. Next, he says, you think you are rich. You think that you're prosperous and you have no need. But I say you're wretched, poor, blind, naked. Now again, remember Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true. In our self-help culture, we talk a lot about your personal view of yourself, that you need to have a positive perspective of yourself. And I think there's probably something to that. But what matters more about your perspective of yourself is Jesus' perspective of yourself. What matters more about the church of Laodicea is what Jesus would say about Laodicea, not what they're pastors or elders or leaders would say about the church, but what Jesus would say about the church. What are Jesus's opinions about us as a body? What is Jesus's opinion about the local church at large in the low country? Does Jesus find us self-sufficient, arrogant, or lazy, or does he find us like, like Philadelphia, patient and steadfast, Does he find us uh, like Thyatira growing in good works? Or does he find us stale? It's clear that this Christian community at Laodicea has prospered financially. 
And it seems consistent and logical to draw the conclusion that they began to prosper financially and then began to coast. Like they kind of had the things that they needed and they quit, they quit feeling the restlessness because all their needs were kind of met and taken care of. And Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says this. Um, this is the prayer um, of the writer here in Proverbs. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The author of Proverbs is drawing on a principle here. He's saying that sometimes when people have plenty, they begin to deny the Lord slowly and steadily. That, that prosperity is a good thing. And it, biblically, prosperity is a is blessing. Abraham prospered. Solomon prospered. Pro, biblically, prosperity is not evil in itself, but prosperity comes with its own temptations. And that's what this author is saying. I don't want to be prosperous because I don't want the temptation of forgetting you. And so, what I, again, I'm not by any way trying to say we're Laodicea, but I am saying that we live in a local community that is financially prosperous. Compared to the rest of the world, we are profoundly wealthy. Would you guys agree with that? And so with that prosperity comes the temptation to coast, to feel like we're self-sufficient, like we've got everything we need, that there's a temptation that comes with prosperity. John Wesley said this. He said that... Um, John Wesley said, I don't know how revival could ever truly be sustained. He said, when revival comes, people begin to grow in work ethic. They begin to grow in integrity. And as they grow in work ethic and integrity, those people begin to prosper financially. And as they begin to prosper financially, this was John Wesley's observation. He said, they always they always get fat and full and quit caring about the community. He said, I don't know how we're supposed to keep revival going when people get character and get work ethic and then get stale and lazy. He said, that's the pattern that I see. And so, again, I'm not saying that's us. I'm just saying that every day we face that temptation. OK, I'm saying as much as any community, we face the temptation to be fat and healthy and have all of our needs met and to just begin to coast and feel happy and to forget that we live on one of what, what America votes, the most beautiful island in, in all of America. We live here. We may forget that our cities are filled with hungry, hurting people who don't live in the South and all know the gospel. Like there's there's work to be done. And if we if we just coast in our prosperity, we'll see we'll see this beautiful surrounding and will forget the work of the gospel. Now, Laodicea prospered largely from selling textiles, wool, um, clothing. They prospered from um, a medical field. They did some stuff with that, that helped with hearing, but one of the big things was that they made an eye salve that helped people who were having infection in their eye. And so their economy is fueled by the selling of clothing and an eye salve that heals people's eyes. We know that is a historical fact. Now, Jesus says to a people who are rich because they sell clothes and they sell eye salve. He says, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. He's, he's playing off of their economy. You, you think that because you've prospered financially that you, all your needs are met. And in the physical, they are. But in the spiritual, Jesus says that you're weak, you're pitiful, and you're naked. And, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a strong rebuke now does that shoe fit for us 
I don't, I, I have no idea. And that's not my place to say. I'm just saying that, that we are faced with that same temptation as much as anyone as we live in a region that prospers financially. And now the things that we can do to ensure that we don't fall into that trap of just being fat and having pockets full and not needing to do anything is like the church should be generous. So a church that prospers financially, that lives in a region that prospers financially ought to be a generous church. And so I believe convictionally, this is Caleb's convictional belief, that tithing, giving the Lord the first fruits of my income. So when I get my paycheck, the first 10% every month goes to the Lord. I believe that's a means given in Scripture by which I honor God above my money. So every month I say, nope, the this part of my income doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And as I, I do that, I put my money into the gospel. I'm, I'm declaring to my heart that money doesn't get this. I, we've, as for my family, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to get a, get an attaboy or a pat on the back. Y'all don't hear that at all. But for, for our family, we believe in tithing every month to make sure that we don't get money greedy. Tithing to the local church. We give our first to the local church. And then we give to missionaries on top of our tithe. We support missionaries to different to one to the Middle East and a couple to Ecuador or to South America. We give money on top of our tithe. That's a way in which I combat the, the need to allow wealth to control my heart. I, I, I combat the temptation of allowing wealth to to pursue my heart by giving by generosity. I think that's a God given principle. James says that the church, um, James was in Jerusalem when he wrote his epistle, that the church in Jerusalem, oftentimes when a wealthy man came in, they would tell the wealthy man, you sit on the front row. And when a poor man came in, they would tell the poor man, now you sit on the ground over here. And James said that the church needs to be very intentional not to show favoritism, that the church can't operate as the world operates. And what he was saying is that sometimes in communities that prosper financially, people begin to build their personal sense of identity and worth based upon their income or net worth. And so people who have more money have more clout in spiritual communities. And James says that's wrong. James says that God loves the poor, unsuccessful man with the same violent, passionate love as he loves the, the, the man with work ethic who has saved all of his life and worked hard for his money. God's love is the same for both. And it, James says it's wrong for the church to begin to value people based upon how much money they make. And so, again, we live in a community of people who are, are prosperous. And so we've got to be intentional to not fall for that system. We need to be intentional to serve the poor, to humble ourselves, to get low. I have to be intentional to I'll tell you this we I was working at a, a, a ministry school in Columbia and one of the things the ministry school does that drove me nuts was every year all of the students and the staff would go work work what's called a fundraiser and so they would go work an event like for Microsoft or one of these companies and the reason that they worked the fundraiser was that the all the money that was made helped to lower everybody's tuition okay and so once a year, I would have to go to an event. When I was younger, it was like I had to clean the toilets with a brush. And so like say that you worked for, uh, what's, what's the skin company that people sell the skin? What they sell the skin, you know, the, the skin. Um, no, not Mary Kay, but whatever. Everyone's naming them all. Um, I didn't hear it. I don't know that I would know it if I haven't heard it. 
Um, but it was like Avon. Like, so one of these Avon conferences, say that you're an Avon lady, you go to the conference and you go to check in and there's some kids standing in a shirt checking you in and taking the trash out. Like, that would be us. That would, once a year, we would do that to help lower the money for the school. And it drove me nuts because I would go to work these events and um, all these little conference managers would talk to me like I was stupid all day long. And I want to say, I'm not stupid, okay? I'm not stupid. And I told my boss, the director of the school, we were both working. I said, I hate these conferences because I hate being talked to like I'm dumb all the time. And my boss, who's the director of the school, said, I love these conferences. I loved being talked to like I'm dumb. I love being a peon once a year because it reminds me that I need to humble myself. And I said, and you are spiritual and I am arrogant. Um, but, but, but that was a place in my heart where I was like, I'm, and, and the, the, all, the other problem was that my boss was like in his 40s and I look like, I'm a, I look like one of the kids. And so I was like in my 20s, so they, of course they thought I was one of the kids um, or the students. But there's something to that. There's something to needing to combat what the world says that those who have the, the greatest network are the most the most important in the church that everyone everyone stands equally at the foot of the cross right like like your your success or your unsuccess your if you were a great sports star or, or whatever you built your own business and did incredible that's beautiful but you but we all are we all sin we all fall short of the glory of God at the end of the day our hearts are wicked before Jesus. And the only thing that earns me favor before God is the shed blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That blood changed everything. And so that blood is what identifies within this local church community value, not net worth. Or you guys hear what I'm saying? Laodicea lost that. Laodicea began to coast. Laodicea lost those gospel principles. And when we live in a community that does prosper, we're going to have to be intentional to be generous. We're going to have to be intentional to humble ourselves. We're going to have to be intentional every now and then to pick up a toilet brush and scrub the toilet, no matter our standing, because because the kingdom of God is topsy-turvy. You hear what I'm saying? The greatest in the kingdom of God are the ones who get the lowest. So you're not great in the kingdom of God because you run a really successful business. You're great in the kingdom of God because you serve and love people well. And, and that's going to matter in our future. That's going to matter in our local church context. We're going to have to be intentional about that. So Jesus says, you're poor, blind, and naked. I know that you prosper, but in the spiritual, you're poor, blind, and naked. And then... His rebuke is, you don't really do anything. You're just kind of there. And then he begins to counsel them or spur them on. He says, repent. Buy from me gold refined by fire. I'll clothe you with white garments so that your nakedness is not exposed. I'll heal your eyes. Listen to verse 19 again. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That is a verse that I rest my life upon. The conviction of the Holy Spirit that exposed my sin in recent weeks is the love of God for me. The conviction of the Holy Spirit which exposes my own arrogance, my own selfishness, is the love of God towards me. It's an invitation for me to have more of God in my life. And as a church, we've got to remember that, that conviction is not a pop from an angry father. Conviction is the loving correction of a loving father who's inviting you into more. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Then he says this, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears, open the door. 
I'll come in and eat with you. And this is intimacy language. This is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm not abandoning you. I reprove you because I love you. I'm, I'm still knocking. I've been standing at your door knocking and I'm still standing here. I'm still desiring communion with you. I'm still longing to have your whole heart. Let me in. Open the door. I'm still standing here knocking. Let me be the center again. Let the gospel have first place. Let your hearts begin to burn again to see your community come to know Jesus. Let worship be full of real passion and praise and intimacy. He says, I'm still standing and knocking. The things of this world could never quench the deepest desires of your heart. Don't miss me. Don't miss me. Don't miss the day of your visitation. Don't miss the hour of your knocking. Don't miss me. Worship team, if somebody would come for me. So I want you to hear this paradigm. First, Jesus says, I'm not satisfied with you. Literally, you make me nauseous. I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to throw you up. And then he closes with, but I'm knocking. You hear that paradigm? I'm going to spit you out. You need to change. You're stale and you're satisfied in your staleness. You're lukewarm, fat, and happy. You make me nauseous. Open the door. I'm still knocking. I still want you. I still desire you. I still want to have you. You're still my bride. I still have purposes and calling for you. Wake up. I rebuke you because I love you. Jesus says, this is my knocking. This is me asking that you let me in. And as I lay on bed at night and meditate on this text i'm asking how do jesus if you're knocking at the door how do i open the door i need to open the door what do how do we open the door and it's clear from the text as i meditated on that the uh, that the believer opens the door through repentance that's what he's asking of them and it's here that leonard ravenhill in his classic why revival terry's says that the depth of the repentance of the church will determine the height of the revival of the church You can have as much of God as you'd like, but walking with him intimately requires allowing him to lead you into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is going in a direction, you know, he is he's leading in paths of righteousness. God is he's walking somewhere. And if you're going to walk with him, you'll have to allow him to lead you to paths of righteousness. Luther in his thesis said that all of the Christian life is repentance. Repentance is healthy. And I have had to do quite a bit of repentance over the last couple of weeks. I don't think you grow beyond the need to repent. I think the opposite is quite true. The further you walk with Jesus, the quicker you are to repent, the more sensitive you are to your own sinfulness. Repentance can be humiliating. So was the cross. The cross was humiliating. Jesus says to Laodicea, I knock at the door and repentance is the means by which you open the door up. What is Jesus asking the Laodiceans to repent of? 
He's not asking the Laodiceans to repent of having emotional ups and downs. He's not asking them to repent of being a human being and having good days and bad days. He's asking them to repent of their lack of restlessness within their spirits to see the gospel of Jesus proclaimed in their community, to fulfill their call. There is no lack. There's there's a lack of tension within their midst. There's a lack of controversy amongst believers about how they should move forward because nobody even cares about moving forward. Oftentimes in churches, there's healthy tension as leaders begin to discuss the future, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And it's Stott and Graham having a conflict about the way that the church should move forward. But in Laodicea, nobody even cares if they move forward. They have no healthy tension. They don't have the fire that's in Jeremiah's belly. They lack uneasiness. They lack gospel vision and passion. And so as we close these series, if you would go ahead and stand to your feet, I in no way, y'all hear me, I'm in no way saying that we are a Laodicean church. I'm not saying that we are a Sardis church. I'm in no way bringing condemnation this morning. I'm just doing my best to draw out of the text what Jesus said to Laodicea. But in response to this passage where Jesus says to Laodicea, I knock and you need to repent. I want to just for the last time in this series, I feel like we did this all series. I just want to open us up. The altars are open. Altar workers, y'all can get in place if you want. I just want to open us up for a moment just to repent. And just to, if there's anything in your heart where you know, as I've spoken, that God was touching it and saying, I want this. I want to just for a moment, just open up a space where you can get in the altar you can sit in your seat. You can stand where you're standing. But just begin to repent. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.